The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Welcome into another episode of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, a podcast delivered by us right here at Republican.org. I'm your host, Price Atkinson, not your normal host. That normal host, Chelsea Henderson, will be along very, very soon with a very special guest in conversation. But first, I want to thank everybody for downloading, listening, subscribing. If you have not done so, folks, please go to the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, whatever is your podcast platform of choice, just hit subscribe. We would love to get a review review from you, but if you hit subscribe, you'll have the podcast delivered to your phone iPad, desktop, wherever you, however you listen to the EcoRight Speaks every week, it'll be delivered right there to you. Also, tell a friend, spread the word. If you like what we do here on the EcoRight Speaks, please tell a friend, spread the word. We are always certainly trying to grow bigger and better. But as I mentioned, we do have a big guest coming up here in the next segment. Chelsea Henderson, our host right here joined by our executive director and former congressman bob inglis that special guest this week is going to be former republican presidential candidate and governor of ohio john Kasich. governor Kasich, a colleague of bob's during bob's first uh, what he likes to call 1.0 bob's first six-year stint in the house from 93 to 98 so they uh, they go back a good ways so we will bring you that conversation with governor john Kasich. Coming up in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to welcome in Lisa Savage. She is one of our passionate uh, members at Republican from the Charleston, South Carolina area. Lisa is a huge John Kasich fan. And I'm going to let Lisa tell you in her own words here in just a second exactly why she is such a big John Kasich fan is we will lead you into that two-part conversation. Yeah, we're going to bring you both parts right here on this podcast. We'll take a little tiny break in the middle of it and then bring you the second segment. But here is Lisa Savage as she's going to take us into the interview with Governor John Kasich. Governor Kasich is one of my most favorite uh, political leaders ever, along with Bob Inglis, of course. But Governor Kasich is somebody I've admired for a really long time. He's proven that he's a bipartisan leader. He still has remained principled with his conservative values, but he values the idea that you can work with people across the aisle to accomplish things for the American people. And to me, that is paramount and something that is desperately needed in today's world. And I'm so glad that he's getting the opportunity to really have his voice heard. Um, I'm not sure when compromise became a negative word, um, but I'm, I, I support that. Anybody who's ever been in a relationship knows the only way it's successful is if you're able to compromise with another person. Um, and I think that needs to happen. And Governor Kasich has been such a good public servant. And we've gotten away from the idea of people going into office to actually serve the public. And that's not why they go. They go to represent us and they go to, you know, to be our voice. 
And if they're not doing that, then they're not doing their jobs. He's very good about, um, even if it's a difficult subject, he wants everybody in the room and he wants everyone's voices heard. And, and, then, and then you build consensus that way. If people feel like their voices have been heard, there's, you know, they're more likely to buy in to the solution. We've got a lot of people who want to identify problems. We have very few problem solvers. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about him. You know, I look back at when the last time our, our uh, federal ballot uh, budget was balanced. He was one of the leaders in that. A hard job. I know how it is just trying to budget at my house. I can't imagine trying to do it for the entire country and to work with people across different political spectrums to make it happen. Yet he did. And um, he's got a track record of accomplishments. And it's not always what he went in initially thinking. And he's also a humble man. If he makes a mistake, he's able to say, hey, I messed up. Let's fix it. And he wants people to fix it with him. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, we are here with Ohio's former governor, John Kasich, in conversation with our own executive director, Bob Inglis. I'm pretty excited to watch these guys be reunited, but also we are going to get to some tough questions about conservative leadership and climate change. Welcome, Governor. Thank you. And welcome, Bob. It's always nice to see Bob, even though I'm on the phone with him a lot. I don't always get to see him, and we're... <laughs> recording this over Zoom, so it's just nice to see faces when people are talking. Likewise, Chelsea. So great to be with you and really appreciate uh, John joining us. It's, it's going to be a great conversation about conservative leadership on climate, which is something that John's been about. Well, I was really happy, Governor, to see you join World War Zero, <laughs> and I saw that op-ed that you co-authored, um, was it about a week ago now, and your support for wanting to take some, some sort of climate action is going to be really critical moving forward. And so one thing I was um, just sort of noodling around in my brain is what can we do, right? And so whether it's whoever's in the White House next year, I think we need to push for some sort of action. And on the Republican side, we have the polling on our side, right? We have the young voters who want to see this happen. What what should what would you like to see an administration do at the federal level? Yeah, well, Chelsea, first of all, the reason why I joined World War Zero is that John Kerry uh, called me up and said to me that he wanted to have this organization. And it wasn't going to be so much policy prescriptive. It was just based on the notion that we have a problem and that we need to bring people together to sit down and talk about this problem. And that's people on the right, the left, the middle, the Republicans, the Democrats, you know, whatever. And, and from there, we could try to forge what a solution would be. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to the old days when Bob and I worked together balancing the federal budget. When we sat down, we all had fundamentally agreed there was a problem with the rising debt. But then we sat at a table and figured out the various ways in which we could get there. If I were to talk about the things that I think could be done uh, quickly is, you know, I think that the ability to, we had requirements out here for us to move into the renewable area, uh, wind and, and solar, and those were mandatory and also conservation. 
And then, unfortunately, our legislature, once I left governor, repealed the mandatory and made it, you know, try to do it. I didn't think that made any sense. We also paid a lot of attention to uh, trapping methane from, uh, from our fracking. And I happen to believe that the gas-fired plants make a lot of sense and are at least, uh, if you would communicate this in a way that would kind of satisfy most sites, would be a transition uh, as we head into, uh, you know, approaching some sort of a carbon zero environment. Now, why, why are people worried about this? Maybe we should talk about that for a second. You know, when you have all this carbon, what it does is it creates a blanket in the atmosphere. And so the sun shines through the carbon, uh, but the carbon doesn't escape. And that creates a heating effect here on the surface of the earth, which is why we see more violent storms. We see the intensity of fires, the intensity of so many things, and uh, rising waters, these kinds of things. So we, we clearly have to deal with the problem of methane and deal with the problem of carbon. And I think as a group, we need to sit down and figure out what's the best way to go. Now, all of this environmentalism, interestingly enough, was started by Teddy Roosevelt as he created our national parks. It was the Republicans that created the EPA. And at the same time, it was Ronald Reagan who talked to George Shultz in the Oval Office and said, what is this I hear about the ozone disappearing? And Schultz says, well, I don't know much about that. And Reagan says, well, I don't know whether it's true or not, but we better have an insurance policy. So there's, if we think we're going to get people to buy into this by jamming a round peg in a square hole, uh, it's not going to work because you have to have a sense of bipartisanship. And um, we got to bring people along. And it, it gets to be about clean water. It gets to be about clean air, about people not having these lung diseases that they have, about keeping people healthy. These are the things that I think people can relate to and grab onto. And then, of course, these aggressive, and I say this in a very positive way, young people, Republicans and Democrats alike, who see this as a cause celeb to get out there and begin to save the planet as they, as they articulate that. And, and so it's, a, it's interesting, but we have a long way to go to build a coalition of people who really want to be involved in this. Well, yeah, you know, John, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, John, one of the things we find at republician.org is that uh, um, there's solution aversion, you know, uh, uh, that when you go out and talk to conservatives, what they're afraid of is that the solution is going to be some enormous government that right. regulates our very breath. And so what we try to do, and Chelsea writes all the time about and uh, does these podcasts about, is try to help conservatives to hear a different solution that they could raise their hand in class. So far, they sit in class like they don't have an answer. But we want them to raise their hand and say, you know what this is all about is just simple accountability. It's a Milton Friedman internalizing negative externalities. Now you go around saying that and people, people look at you funny, don't you? Don't they? You, you, what we're basically just trying to say is put all the cost in, eliminate all the subsidies, watch free enterprise compete on a level playing field. Then we, we, we find conservatives sitting up and saying, hey, we can do that thing. What, what do you think? Is that a message? I hear what you're saying about not being policy prescriptive. But is the message of simple accountability something that resonates with conservatives, you think? I mean, are they, you think that works or what, what do you think? Well, I, I, 
I just don't know, Bob. I mean, it's a confusing thing in, to look at the Republican Party, <clears throat> which slivers of have embraced the notion that we have a problem, but it's not widespread. I think the better approach is to talk, and this is something Arnold Schwarzenegger is so good at, look at the immediate problem, not about what's going to happen in 50 years with the ice or whatever, but to talk about the immediate problem. You know, that what the what happens in an atmosphere when you have a asthma? What happens when you don't have clean water? These are things that people can relate to. Uh, but in terms of in, in terms of the reason why you can't be so policy specific is because if you do that, you will automatically drive people away. I think it's better to have people come together to recognize there, there's, there's a problem and to and to argue this out in, intellectually in terms of what are the reasonable steps we can take. And then on that basis, I think it's less fearful for people if you can get them to say, okay, let's, let's think about what should we do X, should we do Y? Um, but, you know, here in the state, we reduced our, uh, we, we reduced our carbon by 30% over about 20 years because of the move towards natural gas that uh, we were moving in the direction of, uh, of the renewables, which we wanted to see. We wanted to make sure that we had a reasonable policy in terms of uh, farm, farm uh, activity and creating algae on our, our, on our, our lakes. And, uh, you know, we had a crisis out here when the algae disrupted the, the city of Toledo. I mean, these are reasonable things that people can say yes, but all of a sudden if I say we're going to shut everything down, <laughs> We're going to shut everything down tomorrow and everything's going to be great. It scares people. So one of the things I try to do is to interpret um, a little bit of Republicanism to my Democrat colleagues because they don't always understand us and we don't understand them. So we just have to operate this in a calm and measured way, recognizing we can't sit around forever and we've got to do some things. <clears throat> To what you were saying about having the conversation yesterday at the Sutherland Institute, um, Congressman John Curtis from Utah, who has been um, really moving fast, I would not fast, I mean, he's not putting forth any policy proposals, but he's really embraced this idea that we need to do something. And yeah. he said he represents the youngest congressional district in the nation, and I haven't uh, fact-checked that, but I'm going to take him at his word for that. One thing he said in his speech yesterday is that you can't complain about the conversation if you haven't come to the table for the discussion. And I think that's right. So I that plus what right. you were saying kind of underscores the importance to making sure that that you have we have this seat at the table. At the same time, it is hard. Some you know, I think about Thanksgiving dinner. It's hard to be the person that comes in when dinner is halfway over, and so. This is where we have ceded some leadership over to the other side because of the reluctance to have the conversation. In the Absolutely. And, and, and Chelsea, here's the thing. You know, if you tax carbon, that drives some people. And I've never quite understood this because I haven't gotten into conversations. If you tax carbon, which is really uh, George Schultz and Jim Baker's proposal with dividends being able to go back to the families and reducing carbon, some, on, some don't like that. And then there's cap and trade with other people don't like. Uh, so, but there are, there are things to discuss and there are approaches we can take. Uh, I, don't, I don't think, and, and also the development of technology. You know, I mean, if we get battery technology, it, it's a whole game changer. 
So, but if we're, you're right, exactly right. If, if you're not, if you're not in the discussion, you can't go into the middle discussion and try to dictate what the solution is. So that's why World War Zero appealed to me. But, it, but fundamentally, you have to say, we have a problem with climate change. We have environmental issues. Now, Bob, one other issue you and I have talked about, I've heard you articulate this, is that for people who are of faith, we have an obligation to be good stewards of our environment and not to abuse it. Um, that, that, that's, I consider that to be a pretty conservative argument, you know, that we don't have a right to go willy-nilly and belch smoke up into the atmosphere or destroy the rainforest. Or, we, we don't have that right. That is not what the Lord wanted us to do. He, wants us to be, he doesn't want us to worship the environment. That's a really important point. We don't worship it but it is important that we manage it and, and take and respect it and take care of it. That's something else that I think that churches could really get their arms around. And I know there are conservative church, not conservative churches, but faith churches. You know, it's kind of hard to define what you mean by a conservative church. Frankly, it's hard yeah. today to, de- to, to define what you mean by a conservative. So, um, but I know that there are really very smart ministers, great leaders with big churches who are very concerned about this. Yeah, yeah it's, so, it's so true, John. You know, yeah, what do you call a, a, liberal, a liberal biblical view or something, you know, as opposed to conservative biblical yeah, view? Yeah, really. It's, it's yeah. sort of strange, you know. Uh, uh, cultivate the grace of liberality, says Paul, I guess it is. So, you know, yeah, I think that's what we find at republician.org is that if you can talk to people about this thing of dominion theology, you know, Genesis 1, where it says uh, God gave us dominion over the earth. Well, uh, that word is there. Um, But what I like to point out is, and what did the dominion of his son look like? He was a servant leader, washing the feet of the disciples. So if it is dominion we've been given over the creation, it's a special kind of dominion. In other words, it's a it's a care for it. It's a serving the creation, not rape and pillage the earth, burn it up, use it up. And if people hear that, if people in those conservative churches, if you will, um, can hear it that way. So hesitant, you mean, Bob? Yeah, the eco hesitant, as we uh, we heard from our friend Lindsay Linsky on this podcast then they can join the conversation that you're, you and Chelsea are talking about here. Um, otherwise, they feel like, oh, my gosh, we're talking about earth worship. Um, and they know that that's not right. Um, so, and, and it's also true that when you have people come at you in the faith frame and climate, usually they're theological liberals, if there's such a thing, and they're political liberals, and they want you to come to their point of view. So what we try to do is go to them in more of what you talk about, John, which is no actual belief where you can talk scripture to somebody, not some sort of idea that you just came up with out of your own head. Um, And so in that conversation, um, conservatives can join, right? You know, uh, this is a whole nother subject, Bob, but obviously, you know, I think we, we identify faith leaders today, liberal or conservative, based on their political standings, which is totally wrong. I mean, if you want to be in politics, run for office. If you're in politics and you want to be a preacher, go get a collar. But I've got right in front of me a book I just ordered by a man named Helmut Tillichie. 
and it's called Modern Faith and Thought. And I, I like to read him, and I study him. And, you know, is he a liberal or conservative? I don't know. His, I love what he has to say. His insights are particularly great, but it's biblically based. And, and we, can, we can debate what certain passages in the Bible mean, sort of like the environment. We can debate what they mean, but we know that they're important. So it's it, but it's a shame that we have moved to a political definition of liberal or conservative uh, religion, uh, people of religion, people of faith, based on their political views. They keep their mouths shut more rather than uh, less. RepublicEN.org is the leading voice for climate action, and we want to hear from you. Now, let's continue with this week's episode. I was going to also go back to what you were saying about clean air and clean water, because, um, you know, I think that anytime you can connect climate change to something that people are seeing, right? So the example, I'm from Maine, you can't ice fish nearly sometimes you can't ice ice fish at all there used to be this cross-country race that we would do every winter it was called the um caribou bog wicked winter ski race and something or another i'm blanking now but it was like a 12 mile or 12 mile race and you had to cross a river you had to cross the penobscot river and so they always had it in February, river was frozen by then. You can cross it. They actually had to cancel the race. They don't have it anymore because the river doesn't freeze. And so that's the kind of thing that people kind of take note of, right? When something that has been a tradition can no longer be a tradition because of these elements. And so how do we connect to more people that the things that they are seeing can be impacts of this climate effect? Let's back to the table discussion, you know. And government has an essential role. Uh, I mean, I think Bob and I would come from the perspective that government is a last resort, not as a first resort. But the idea that government has no role in our society, to me, is ridiculous. And uh, so I think, you know, do we sometimes overregulate? Absolutely. Uh, are, there, are there reasonable, uh, re, you know, uh, relaxation of, of some of these standards? Of, of course there should be, because sometimes the enviros can get really, uh, you know, really carried away and, uh, and that turns people off. So I think, again, being at the table to discuss reasonable uh, approaches to this. Now, when you say reasonable, that should not mean, Chelsea, by the way, that we just delay. It just means what is a proper course of action today to get started? Because every, every bit of progress starts with usually with some small steps. The other thing is that people would say, oh, well, you know, you don't have that race up there because this is a normal cycle. Well, what they're not paying attention to is the effect of this carbon buildup and the heating of our, of our atmosphere, the heating of Earth. And so while it's true there have been cycles, I think that we've exacerbated those cycles. And if you look at the fires, if you look at what's happened over in the place in Italy where that, that floods all the time. I've only been there a hundred times over in Venice. Yeah. I mean, you think about, I've been to Venice when there was actually some small amount of flooding, but when you take a look at what's been happening there lately and they, they've got this mechanism to try to shut the water from coming, it's, it's pretty amazing what's happened over there. I mean, that's, you look at the fires in California, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So anyway, um, I think, and we got to say to people, if your kids got asthma or you have asthma, 
the air matters to them. You don't want to be drinking bad water. Look at what's happened up in Flint. You know, we, we, we have to be on top of these things. Yeah. Hey, John, when, as you I apologize to all those Venetians out there who thought I forgot <laughs> their country, but I love them. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. When, when, you, when you're working with World War Zero, are you finding, tell me yes, uh, I only want to hear yes, uh, that uh, the conservatives are starting to come around, I mean, are, are starting to yeah, realize those are. things. I just, had a, I just had a great conversation with a young woman, graduate of Harvard, who's involved in this. She's very, very intelligent, very wicked. Brian, we know Kira. Yeah, she's she's really she's top notch. And you know, of all the World War Zeros things that I have done in interviews, Kara was the one that was she was so great and people love to watch her because she was so constructive and she's so intelligent and she's you know, she's done such a great job coming from Alaska and talking about her experience. Uh, you know, in, in the places where she grew up and what a difference it made. And she's a big promoter of the Baker Schultz uh, carbon dividends plan. But it, it's very interesting. She she represents, she's a vanguard of young people in the Republican Party that can get excited about where we're going. Yeah, for sure. She's a, a friend of Republic EN and serves as a spokesperson. And we had her on the podcast a few weeks ago. Her story is really incredible. And she has experience with the the permanent dividend in Alaska, right? So I right. think Baker Schultz plan makes sense to her because it's in a context that she's right. grown up with understanding and and finding the appeal to. So um, we need more Kara's for sure in the world. If you're a Kara, come find us. Um, one other thing I just wanted to highlight because I don't feel like we can have a discussion and not bring up COVID. How do you think that that this conversation on climate change should happen in the COVID context. Do you see a role for potentially, you know, in any future recovery um, bill having something to push toward a clean economy? Do you, a clean energy economy? Do you think that there can be a, a connection between we weren't really prepared, right? I feel like Ohio was one of the best states in terms of its immediate response to the threat of the virus and um, I think you, know, you have to be careful when you write bills that you start trying to put other big public policy things in it. I mean, is there something reasonable? I'd have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what COVID teaches us is that at least with COVID, we're hopeful within the period of the next, I don't know, three, four, five months that there's going to be a treatment, whether it's an antibody treatment, whether it's a vaccine or both. Um but once you slip over the edge, when it comes to the environment, there's no vaccine. Uh, and that's, the, that's one of the lessons we need to have, that we don't want to get to the point where there's no way to come back. Now, Bob and I, are we're not going to see this, but our kids will or our grandchildren will. And uh, we have an obligation to them. You know, it's almost like being a good steward, Bob. You remember we used to say that when it comes time to, for the national debt, we don't have a right to, to leave that debt to our children. Uh, you know, when they go to the last reading of the will and testament, you shouldn't be opening things up to look at the estate and find out you have all these bills, right? That, that was immoral, we, we thought. It would be immoral to leave the next generation with a planet that is under so much duress that begins to change and has significant impact on, on the way in which we conduct our lives. So 
that to me is something that, that needs to be talked about. We look, I think we're gaining, but we don't want to scare people with new green deal and putting, you know, having things that are not even connected to the environment, put in, we just got to take this thing carefully, aggressively, carefully aggressive. How's that? Carefully aggressive. Yeah. And you know, John, it is, it's worth reminding our listeners, uh, Chelsea, that, uh, John Kasich was chairman of the budget committee that was the last one to balance the federal budget. I know it occurred in the last century, so it seems like ancient history. And he went on to great things in Ohio as a governor. But it is worth celebrating that the budget actually balanced. John, what, in 1997? Well, balanced like three or four years in a row with big surpluses. The point of that is it took 10 years to get there. And so... You know, we had to start off, and you remember the early days, Bob, when there was 30 or 40 of us who were who were expressing concern and voting for it. The same is true with the, this. The Kasich way. budget, the Kasich budget yeah, we were voting for. It got slaughtered every year, but it grew and it grew and it grew. So these things, you know, we don't have 10 years to wait around before we get started, but just everybody has to realize this doesn't, Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, I really love what you said about the environment. There's no vaccine for the environment. I think that's a great phrase, a great sentiment to sort of leave off on and um, for people to take to heart. That's the message that people need to remember. There's no magic cure for the things that we're seeing right now with climate change. And I'm going to be using that one, Governor, for a while. I will credit you every time, I promise. Thank you. You know, I I tell you another interesting thing. Uh, When I get ready to leave the governor's office, I hadn't driven in like eight years, you know, sporadically. So I had to go buy another car and uh, I went and bought a Tesla. And uh, why did I get it? Well, I, I thought it would be, it'd be environmentally good, but I also thought it would be really interesting. And uh, so, you know, the fact that it's an electric car, I come home at night and I plug in the car and I wake up the next day, I've got a, a full set of miles and now they're putting superchargers on all the roads and everything. It's just really remarkable. And I, I don't go to gas stations. All I do is plug in at my house. And it's, it's just pretty remarkable. That, the, 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 the drive towards things like that makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. So we're all in this together. Right. And I think the Lord will bless our efforts. I believe that. I hope so. Well, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. And your work. Continue the great conversation. Bring more people to the table. We're counting on you. All right, Bob, thank you. Great to be with you. Hi, I'm Jacob Abel, a longtime member and spokesperson for RepublicAnd.org, and I wrote the following letter to the editor, titled Grateful to NC Senators Tillis and Burr, uh, for the Charlotte Observer, which was printed on August 18th. On July 23rd, Senators Tom Tillis and Richard Burr, along with several other Republican senators, sent a letter to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, urging him to consider investment to bolster the clean energy economy and innovation and include it in the next COVID relief package. As a young Republican from Concord who cares deeply about climate change as well as U.S. energy independence, I applaud our senators for speaking out on these issues. North Carolina has an important role to play in developing and deploying clean energy. It's important that our elected officials continue to be outspoken on developing clean energy, as North Carolina will benefit greatly from the increased jobs and economic activity it will bring. I encourage listeners to write their own letters when they want to get the attention of their elected officials, 
as their staffs look for their names in both local and national papers. It's quick, it's easy, and I can speak from experience. So, Bob, I just wanted to thank you. I really think that your relationship with Governor Kasich is what compelled him to join the podcast this week, and it was so great to hear from him and hear his perspective. Well, it was good to be with John. Uh, you know, I spent six years on the budget committee with John as chairman, and uh, we did work on that that Kasich budget uh, all those six years, and finally. Uh, it, it, it passed, and uh, it was a pretty amazing moment when we actually balanced the budget of the United States. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to imagine balancing the budget today? <laughs> Not to digress, but... <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. Uh, we're running a trillion-dollar deficit even before coronavirus, which should be a cautionary tale. So, you know, speaking of a trillion, and this is another digression, but... I was helping one of our spokespeople uh, with an op-ed a couple weeks ago that has not yet been published, but we have our fingers crossed. And he cited the deficit, the $26 trillion and counting deficit. And I looked up what $1 trillion is equivalent to just because I had read that the human mind actually can't contemplate how big a trillion is. So a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. So when you uh, think about the deficit as $26 trillion, and I don't know what 26 times 32,000 is, but anyway, a lot of, a lot, it's a lot of money. And, um, but to get back to our point at hand, I, you know, that, that six year effort that you underwent to balance the budget, it feels, you know, we always say, I'm sure this is familiar to you as a former member, that Capitol Hill is more of a marathon than a sprint. But we have to kind of overlay that with the urgency, you know, with with climate change. And and I thought that the governor said something that was that has really stuck with me since our conversation. And that was when he said there's no vaccine for the environment. And that's true. Right. Except maybe we have a vaccine for climate change. Do you think that's fair to say, Bob? Well, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, it's true. There are no easy fixes. Uh, things take uh, a lot of hard work. You know, I mean, uh, there are the diet pills that are advertised, you know, in newspapers. You take this pill and uh, it'll turn you into this uh, uh, buff 26 year old or something, you know. Um, well, probably not. It probably won't work. Um, but amazingly, People do buy those pills. Um, so there are no easy diet pills when it comes to solving for climate change. There's no vaccine. But there is some uh, some exciting work that can happen. In other words, some it is a threat, but it's also an incredible opportunity to grow the free enterprise system. And I think that's something that John would be, John Kasich would be particularly focused on, is that kind of growth potential. Um, I wish he'd gotten a little bit more into uh, prescriptive policy solutions. He he says he wants to avoid those um, and just talk about the existence of the problem. That surely helps us. Um, so we're glad for World War Zero uh, doing that because mm -hmm. it's an important part of starting toward a solution. You know, I mean, if you uh, if you think you need to diet and exercise, well, just getting ready to do that is important and uh, getting on a carbon diet is important. Um, but uh, 
what we hope also to avoid is no diet pills, no, no quick, easy solutions. Um, let, let's do this in a muscular way that, that solves the problem worldwide. And of course, Chelsea, that's what we focus a lot on at republican.org is, is making sure that this is a worldwide solution, economy-wide and worldwide, because this isn't just America. Uh, this is the whole world, because uh, uh, emissions anywhere are climate change everywhere. So For sure. Um, and I think that's the beauty of the border adjustable part of the version of a carbon tax that we um, have supported, and especially in the context of, of other countries. And, you know, when I was working on the Hill on a climate bill a gazillion years ago, one thing we always heard was, well, why should the U.S. act if China and India aren't acting? And and you compel other countries to come to the table when you make the carbon tax border adjustable. Exactly. We make it in the interest of our trading partners to follow our lead, because otherwise they'd be paying a tax on entry of their goods into an American port that then is re then remitted to Washington if they had just collected that tax in their own country the money, the tax money would have ended up in their capital, not ours. And their goods would have come through the American port with no adjustment. So pretty soon after uh, our tax uh, uh, being applied at the border is up, upheld by the World Trade Organization, we think it would be upheld, our trading partners will find it in their interest to do exactly the same thing. No international agreement, no long negotiations at the UN, no bowing and scraping, just that bold move by the United States. And then it's in the interest of our trading partners to follow us. For sure. And, you know, we, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, we shouldn't act before other countries act, but the EU, the European Union is about to impose a carbon tax that is border adjustable for, so we will feel the impact of that as, as Americans. And it, just would be nice to be out in front rather than, you know, us being in that position of paying that tax, as you just described, it would be better to be collecting that tax. And then, of course, using it in a way that is revenue neutral and doesn't grow the size of the government. Um, although, you know, I'm also thinking that what Carlos Curbelo said in episode nine about using some of those funds for either infrastructure upgrades that will be necessary because of climate change. I mean, I don't like to open that can of worms too far, right? Because then all of a sudden you have, um, everybody wants a little, a little, everybody wants a worm, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's a missed opportunity to not have the carbon tax be on the table. So hopefully in World War Zero's efforts to have these 10 million climate conversations that they hope to spark, that once they have those initial conversations, then they can start talking about solutions because the other side is talking about solutions. And I think it's not enough for conservatives to be against the Green New Deal. They have to be for something. And you have this great analogy you make about I think it's Social Security, right, where you say Americans will take something over nothing. And so if the Green New Deal is all that's on the table and you have this high percentage of voters on both sides of the aisle now saying that climate change is a problem and the federal government needs to do more, then if, you know, absence of some other options, will people flock toward the Green New Deal? 
Yeah, and we think that our, our role at RepublicEan.org is to educate fellow conservatives about a solution that fits with our values. Um, and that's what what I find in traveling around is it is a lot of solution aversion. We assume as conservatives that the solution is a bigger government that wants to regulate our very breath. Um, well, that's pretty much anathema to every conservative. So what we need to show is, no, there's a solution that fits with our values because it's a simple thing of accountability and a level playing field where the, all the costs are in, all the subsidies are out, now compete on that level playing field and watch free enterprise deliver innovation faster than government regulations or mandates or fiscal tax incentives could ever imagine. And so uh, I, I do hope that uh, as the conversation proceeds, those 10,000 conversations are 100, 10 million, 000, uh, 10 million, 10 million, 10, <laughs> 10 million conversations uh, proceed that they, uh, yes, identify the problem, but then go go on to talk about the solution. And the good news is, while we often hear at Republican.org talk about how the solution so fits with conservative notions, and it does, the good news is it's, it's also acceptable to many progressives. And so the result is, really, we can bring America together and lead the world to a solution. We sure can. And, you know, these are just baby steps. It's definitely not 10 million, but I wanted to, on that note, highlight some of our latest um, members of the community to join RepublicEN.org. We have Candace H. in North Carolina, Weston H. in Texas, Jason P. in Colorado, Robert A. in New Hampshire, and Cliff E. in Oregon. And just super excited anytime we grow our community. And, you know, you are always talking about it's one person at a time. You know, we have to 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 reach, you know, you can't, it's harder to reach people en masse. But if, you know, you make that connection with someone, then they can be part of your community. They become part of your tribe. And so hopefully, um, you know, we will continue that growth and continue to bring um, our message and our voice at the same time that groups like World War Zero are having their conversations. And, and you know, there was one other thing. Price normally does this, and I do not have Price's amazing radio voice, but we do have a great podcast review that I wanted to share with our listeners. And just remember, usually you would get your review read by Price. I will be a sorry second place, but uh, this is the review is five stars, which you know I love. And it says, excellent podcast with the right balance of realism and optimism on the critical issue of climate change. A great entry point for your conservative friends who still have their skepticisms. So remember, if you write us a review, give us five stars. Price, with his great radio voice, will read it on the air. So, Bob, um, I am not exactly sure who's going to be on the podcast after um, Governor Kasich, because as you and the team know, I'm heading up to Maine and I pre-recorded a bunch of segments. So I'm leaving it up to Price to find the magical combination of guests for our next episode, but we will definitely promote on social media and I encourage everyone to tune in and listen. Great to be with you this morning.
And that's it today for Republic EN's podcast, The Eco Right Speaks. Please join us on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. There are probably platforms I've never heard of. Listen to us, give us a rating, and be sure to tune in next week. Thank you, listeners. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.